All right, we are back for another session here dealing with uh, the issue of limited atonement or particular redemption, that Christ died to effectively secure the salvation only of his bride, his sheep, his people, his church, and obviously those who hold to unlimited atonement that Jesus died for every single individual in the same way throw a lot of verses uh, towards my position in objection, understandably. And we've been working through the all text. In the previous video, it's 50-something minutes long. You can go look at that. Uh, it's like, how does limited atonement respond to the all passages? We've been working through a lot of the all texts. I looked at a lot of them in that video. If you've seen that video, there's one last one I really want to spend a moment on. Someone even put it in a comment on our, one of our videos very recently, which is John 12, 32. And then if we have time, I want to move to the world text. Christ is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Um, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son, etc. And then I want to look at the issue of what about 2 Peter 2.1 that seems to say Christ died to purchase or buy people for himself who end up perishing, apostatizing in their sin. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to jump in here at tw John 12.32. And people would say, and someone did just say, I think yesterday in the comment section to say, uh, this very clearly seems to imply uh, unlimited atonement. This verse says, Jesus is speaking about his own death. He says this, when I am lifted up from the earth, this is the cross. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will do what? I will draw all people, pas anthropos, to myself. And they would say, listen, this could not be clearer, unlimited atonement. When Jesus dies on the cross, he's going to draw not some people, not the church, not the elect, not the sheep. No, he's going to draw all people, pas anthropos, to myself. Well, if you've seen the last video, uh, you will remember that this word all and all people can refer to every single individual or it can refer to every kind, some of every kind. All right, thanks for listening. I have to make one correction to something I said in this lesson I said that John 12, 32 reads in the Greek, all people, pas, anthropos, but the word anthropos is not in the original of that verse. It doesn't change anything about my interpretation of the verse, but I wanted to clarify just the word pas, the word all, which can mean all kinds or everyone without a distinction. That's the word that's used there. So I actually think it strengthens my case rather than weakening it. And if you look at the last video, I show you many examples of how pos anthropos can be used one way or used the other, depending on context. Romans 5.18 says that Jesus brings justification and life to pos anthropos, all men. Well, even a five-point Arminian would say that does not teach that everyone will be saved. In that verse, clearly, pos anthropos, same words, don't mean every single person without exception. It means all those who are in Christ. So look at the last video for details on that. In the meantime, this is still a verse that we need to take very seriously. What does it mean that Jesus, when he is lifted up, will draw all people to himself? And there's a couple of things here. Uh, first of all is how the phrase pos anthropos can be used. But the other one is what draw means. This word is an important word. It's used uh, earlier in John about salvation. We want to look at that. But before we do so, let's look at the context of this verse. Remember what I kept saying in the last video, a text, this is a text, without a context, the verses that go around it, becomes a pretext for a proof text. In other words, any text that is not understood in its context can be misused and misunderstood. So if we look back, this is verse 32. If we look back at verse 20, 
This is on Palm Sunday. Jesus is making his way on a donkey into Jerusalem. The crowds are there uh, praising him, laying out their coats. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. He's coming from Bethany over the hill uh, of the Mount of Olives, coming into Jerusalem. And look at this amazing text. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, that is Gentiles, non-Jews. So these, the Greeks, the Gentiles, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Now you remember, Bethsaida is, in, uh, is up in Galilee, up near where the Gentiles uh, would be more prominent, it seems, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So you've got Greeks Gentiles who want to see Jesus. This is an amazing, wonderful thing, and it's a sneak preview of where the gospel is about to go. Jesus is going to die on the cross, and what comes next in Matthew, the Great Commission, go into all nations, go to all the Gentiles, all the Greeks, go to everybody everywhere, and preach the gospel, seek conversions, baptize, teach them. Okay, so this sign here that Greeks are wanting to see Jesus is a wonderful sign of what's to come on the other side of the cross. And this is one week out, well, actually five days out, Sunday before his death on Good Friday. So Philip, who is from Galilee up near the Gentiles, I, I suppose this is how this is to be taken. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So what do they tell Jesus? They said, there are Greeks. They have come to seek you. They want to see you, Jesus. Greeks want to see you. And when they went and told Jesus, and so what does Jesus say? Jesus is responding to Gentiles who want to see him. Greeks who want to see him, the nations who are coming to the Jewish Messiah in this moment. And this is like a, a foreshadowing of future things. Kind of like the three magi coming to, the, coming to Jesus as a young child and giving him those gifts. It was, it was a sneak preview of coming attractions of the nations flocking to the Jewish Messiah. So they tell Jesus that the Greeks have come. They went and told Jesus, verse 23, and Jesus answered, the, him, answered them what? What does he say? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's that about? That's the cross. Throughout John's gospel, the hour of Christ's glorification is his crucifixion. It's, it's an ironic glorification. He is going to be lifted up to a place of exaltation like a king, but he's going to be a king on a cross. That's why in John's gospel, this same gospel, a few chapters later, John 19, Jesus is on the cross, and what does it say? Uh, here's Jesus, the king of the Jews, right? The king of the Jews on the cross in three languages, the three languages of the empire. I think it's what? Uh, Hebrew, Latin, and oh man, Greek, right? I think those are the three. But the point is the, the gospel is now going to be proclaimed to all nations, all tongues, all languages, all people groups. It's the first time we can go public internationally with Jesus, and it's when he's on the cross, right? So that there's no misunderstanding of what kind of Messiah or Christ this is. He's the king on the cross. The hour of his glorification has come, and it's signaled by the Gentiles, the nations coming to see Jesus. Jesus then talks about his death. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And this fruit is going to be a harvest both amongst ethnic Jews, but even more so throughout all the nations of the earth. And then you get down to verse 31 in this same conversation, and Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. So in context, you're talking about this world, and here we're talking about uh, not just the Jewish world, but we're also talking about the Gentile world, right? Now is the judgment of this world, Jews and Gentiles, all the nations. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So again, Satan is the ruler of all these nations, all these peoples across the world. Satan is the ruler, lowercase r, that he's going to be cast out. How's that going to happen? And, and you know the answer. And I, 
when I am lifted up from the earth. Cross. When I am lifted up to glorification on the cross, the king on the cross, what an amazing thing. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will do what? I will draw all people, pos anthropos, to myself. Now, in context, grammatically, all people can mean every single person without exception in the world. It sometimes does mean that. I think it may more commonly mean all kinds of people. Okay, but it can mean either one. So in context, which one makes the most sense? I want to give two arguments for why I think it means all kinds of people. All kinds without exception. Not every single person without exception is going to be drawn to Christ. I mean, think about it for a second. What about those who died before Jesus died on the cross? Are they drawn to him when he's lifted up? And I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. If he means every person who's ever lived, that can't be true, could it? I mean, it doesn't seem to because how is his death on the cross going to affect the people who died long before the cross? How is it going to affect the people who never heard about the gospel? Now, listen, I hate the fact that people live and die without hearing the gospel. and We need to send missionaries to tell them. But it's certainly true that people will live and die and never hear about Jesus being lifted up on the cross, lifted up from the earth to die for sinners, for, the, for this world, to cast out the, the ruler of this world, for Jews and Gentiles. So how are those people drawn? They never even hear about God, the gospel. No, I don't think this is saying every single individual person in the history of the world is going to be drawn to Jesus when he's lifted up. And some will respond positively by libertarian free will, and some will respond negatively because of free will. I don't think that's what this is saying. I think he's saying, when I am lifted up from the earth, and I'll, I'll argue for this more in a second, but I'm going to give you what I think the answer is, and then we'll work backwards for, for what's going on. I think that the drawing of Jesus right here is effective. It's effectual. I think that the drawing here always results in the person coming to Christ. When I'm lifted up, I will draw, I think he means all kinds of people without exception. I'm going to draw people from every rank, every language, every people group, every socioeconomic background, men and women, boys and girls, old men and old women. I'm going to draw people with dark skin and light skin. I'm going to draw people from Africa, Asia, Europe, and what, would, what we now know as the Americas. I'm going to draw people from every group, every language, every tribe. All kinds of people will be drawn effectively uh, to myself when I'm lifted up. In other words, his lifting up is going to be a particular redemption, a limited atonement. He is going to effectively draw and savingly draw um, individuals from every single people group. He's going to draw some of all kinds without exception to himself by his lifting up from the cross. Here are my two arguments for why I want to defend that. Number one is, in the immediate context, we're talking about Jews and Gentiles. We're talking about kinds of people, right? So we're talking about Jews, not Jews only, also Greeks or Gentiles. So in the immediate context, we're talking about different kinds of people. He's not going to save every single Greek. He's going to save some from every kind. And same with the Jews. So in the immediate context, you're dealing with different kinds of people. That's in the immediate context. So that, I think, leans us towards pos anthropos, meaning that. Again, go back to my previous video on our YouTube page, uh, How Does Limited Atonement Respond to the All Passages, to get a lot more detail on this phrase, pos anthropos. If you haven't seen that, why it can refer to uh, every kind rather than every individual. But more, perhaps more importantly here, let's focus it on one Greek word. I will draw to myself, all people. What is this word right here? Is this a wooing that may or may not win 
what it's asking for? Is this like a boy in, 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 in high school going to ask a girl to the prom and he tries to woo her and win her and she's like, I don't think I want to do it. Nah, you, you could try to draw me, but I'm not giving in. Maybe I'll give in. I don't think so. Is, is that the kind of drawing we're talking about? A, a kind that could be effective or not effective? We, we don't really know. It, it's up to the other person to see if, this, if they respond well. I don't think so. Now, let, me, let me tell you why. The word here is helko, right here. This is the Greek word, uh, helko. And um, I guess, excuse me, yeah, is that how you pronounce it? I think that's right. Helco. And uh, here are the two different definitions of the word right here. It, it means to draw or drag off, metaphorically to draw by inward power to lead to impel. This is a strong word. It's effective. It talks about Paul, um, excuse me, Peter, Helco drawing the fish in through the net. He pulls the net onto the ship. He drew them in. Uh, he pulled them in. It was an effective kind of thing. People, it talks about, James says, the rich people drag you into court. Remember, in, in, that's in James 5. The rich people are the ones who Helco, they draw you, they drag you. They, you don't have a choice. They're pulling you in, in a sense. Now, um, this is significant here because let's look at how the word is used. In John's gospel, only one other time does he use the word to refer to God drawing you to salvation. Okay, here it is. John 6, 44. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless, what? The Father who sent me draws him. And do you see this? Same word. Helco, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, I may not be, but this is super important. So Jesus says no one. Th this is, th this is uh, the entire human race. There are no exceptions to no one. Okay, every single person in the world is here. Zero people in the world can do something on their own. Zero people can come to Christ. That's amazing. This is the destruction of the view called Pelagianism. Pelagius said, we don't need God's grace or help. We can choose to live an obedient life without his grace. That's full-blown Pelagianism, which is heresy. Uh, Arminianism is more of a semi-Pelagian view, which says we can't do it on our own, but with God's prevenient grace helping us, our wills that are locked into evil left to themselves can be put in a place of moral neutrality where we can neutrally make a decision one way or the other. We couldn't do it without God's help, but God's help does not decisively push us towards righteousness. God's prevenient grace brings us to neutrality, and then we choose either for wickedness or for righteousness. Is that what's being taught here? A lot of people would say, yes. No one can, that is, th th this right here, the word can, is moral ability. We are physically able to make all kinds of choices, but we are morally unable to come to Christ unless something happens, okay? No one, zero people on earth have the moral ability to come to Christ, to choose Christ, to want Christ, to decide for Christ, to put their faith in Christ. No one can do this. No one has the moral ability to do that unless. What an important unless. We need whatever comes after the unless to be saved. What is it? Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, already you can see. Let me, let me, let me put more verses here. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. Do you see here? No one can come to him unless the Father draws him. And what happens if the Father, what happens if the Father draws this individual? He will also raise him. This is salvation. He will raise him up on the last day. So 
I think this verse says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, but if the Father draws him, that person will be saved and raised up on the last day. Some people say they don't think that's true. Well, then let's keep reading in the verse. Jesus is going to back up what he's saying right here. He's going to back up this statement with a quote from Isaiah 54 in, in verse 45. L listen to this. Jesus is backing this up with a quote from the prophets, Isaiah 54. Jesus backs it up. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught of God, by God. Man, this is amazing. Who's going to be taught by God in this group? All. Whoever the all is, they're going to be taught by God. And then look. Everyone, same group as the all. I, I think these are connected. The, the, the all and the everyone are the same group. Everyone, excuse me, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now look at this. Jesus is going to explain what does it mean that God draws you. You can't come unless he draws you, but if he draws you, you'll be raised up. Let me quote the Old Testament to back that up. They will all, that is everyone God draws, is being taught by God. For God to draw you to Jesus so that you come to Christ, no one comes unless drawn, which means for you to come to Christ, God has to teach you to trust Christ. He's got to teach you how to come to Christ. He's got to draw you. How does he do, how does he do that? He does it by teaching all his people what's going to happen. And then look, all, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father does what? Comes to me. So look, everyone who has learned from the Father, every single one who has learned from the Father is going to come to Christ. So I think this text is teaching not that God draws all and some of their own libertarian free will choose to come and others choose not to. No, Jesus draws him and then he's going to raise him to salvation. Everyone he draws, he saves. And no one who is not drawn comes to Christ because, as he says here, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one is going to come to Christ unless they are drawn, unless they're drawn. And everyone who's drawn is raised. Jesus backs it up. Being drawn to Christ is the Father teaching you to trust Christ and every single person who has learned, who's heard and learned from the Father. Everyone God teaches, all who are taught, everyone who learns from the Father chooses to come to Christ. So God is in control, but our choice is still real. And that's what this text is teaching. So when you take it back here, you see that this drawing is an effective drawing. Everyone who is drawn is raised. If you're not drawn, you don't come to Christ. You can't come to Christ unless he draws you. If he draws you, you'll be raised up. God drawing you is God teaching you, okay? God's people, in Isaiah 54, the context is the new covenant community being restored. God's true people being restored. That's the context of Isaiah 54. And it says they will all, that is the new covenant community, that God's true people will be taught by God, taught to trust Christ, drawn to Christ. And every single one in this community, every single one who has heard and learned from the Father, everyone the Father has taught will choose to come to Christ. God's drawing is an effective, effectual drawing. Every single person he draws gets saved, is saved. So let's go back here again to John 12, 32. Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, I will draw, same word, eklo, if I'm saying it right, I will draw, and what does he say? All kinds of people to myself. Grammatically, pas boss can definitely mean, and often does mean, all kinds of people in context, it's the Gentiles who are coming to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Show us Jesus. So we're talking about Jews and Gentiles. We're talking about different groups. 
when Jesus hears a diff- that the Gentiles are coming to see him, the, the Greeks, he says, it's time for me to die. And he says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, when I die on the cross, when I'm glorified on the cross, I will draw, that is effectively draw to salvation. Because no one can come unless drawn and everyone who's drawn comes. John 6 said, so here, when I'm lifted up, I'm gonna draw, I will effectively save, draw to myself all kinds of people. Every, people from every single kind. I will draw uh, from every group, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That fits with Revelation 9. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, and by your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It doesn't say you purchased every people. It says you purchased people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you're going to effectively draw them to yourself. So this is one of the most popular unlimited atonement verses. I think in context, it actually teaches particular redemption. For more on John's use of election and the atonement, you can go look at an earlier video I did called A Deep Dive on Predestination and Limited Atonement, and I spend about an hour maybe or 50 minutes, I think, in John's gospel, maybe 40 minutes in John's gospel, looking at that in more detail. All right, now let's move quickly on to the world text. Uh, how much time do I have? Okay. The Greek word cosmos or world uh, has multiple possible meanings. And I think one of the things that makes this discussion so difficult is that people assume a certain meaning for the word world. It's very common for people to say, well, obviously, world means world. Couldn't be more clear. It's everybody in the world. Well, let's just see. I'm getting this from Mike Riccardi, his PhD thesis written on limited atonement called uh, To Save Sinners. Very good book. He's an elder at John MacArthur's church, if you don't know who Mike Riccardi is. The Greek word cosmos or world can mean at least seven things. Some people think it's more, but this word cosmos can mean at least seven things, depending on what? Depending on context. Context is key. Now let's just look. It can mean the universe as a whole. It can mean the inhabitable earth. It can mean every individual without exception. It can also mean an indistinct large group of people. Back in that John 12 chapter, the Pharisees say the whole world has gone after Jesus. Well, their whole world definitely means not even close to the whole world. It means a very large group of people in Israel. That's all it means. Uh, so they're, it's kind of hyperbole, but the word whole world there can refer to just a, what, 20,000 people? It's not the whole world, every single individual. Number five, it can refer to a subset of mankind conceived of as hostile to God. John 15, the world will hate you. Or it can refer to the world system in opposition to Christ. Do not love the world, the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. It's referring to worldliness, a a system in opposition to Christ. And this is important. It can refer to the Gentile world in opposition to the Jewish world. Like when the Samaritans say he's the savior of the world, they mean the Samaritans are saying the Jewish savior, remember, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. She says, you're a Jew. You're not supposed to have dealings with me, a Samaritan woman. Why are you wanting to share a water bucket with me? That's not acceptable. You've got your religion in Jerusalem. We've got our religion in in Mount Gerizim. Which mountain are we supposed to worship on? Our mountain in Gerizim or your mountain in Jerusalem? And Jesus says, Woman, the day is coming. It is now here when the true worshipers will not worship on this mountain or that mountain, but they will worship whom the Father is seeking. He's seeking true worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He says, salvation is of the Jews, but I'm telling you, I'm the Christ standing right in front of you. And he offers her salvation. She is saved. She goes back home and the Samaritans come out to see Jesus. And they say, he's the savior of the world, meaning the Jewish Messiah, 
Salvation is of the Jews. The Jewish Messiah is here for the Samaritans too. He's here for the Gentiles too. The half-breeds as they were thought of, half-Jewish, half-Assyrian. He's here for all people. It's the Gentile world in contrast to the Jewish world. So you got to see the word world has a lot of meanings and some would say even more meanings than that. We've talked about this already. I'll just, I'll, I'll talk about this really quickly. First John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a parakletos, a paraclete, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole cosmos, the whole world. And many people say, look, our sins only refers to believers. Sins of the whole world means unbelievers or the unelect. And I, I understand why people want to go that way. I don't think that's what John is saying. John is a single man, an apostle, writing probably to ch the church in Ephesus, maybe some other churches in Asia Minor. He's not writing to every single church in his original intent in sending this letter. And uh, here's what we find out. He says, look, to, to the, say he's talking to the Ephesian church. He says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, as in you, the Ephesian church and mine. Me, the Apostle John, and you guys, his, the original church or churches he wrote to. He's a propitiation for our sins, but he says, listen, I don't want you to think he, we, we worship a parochial Savior, a, a, a narrow Savior who only uh, cares about me and this church or me and the few churches in Asia Minor. No, he's the propitiation not just for our sins in Asia Minor or the few churches in Ephesus or whatever. No, no, no. But also for, he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, the whole cosmos. Now, if the word propitiation here means that he takes away the wrath of God, which is what propitiation means. It means to remove wrath, to satisfy God's wrath. If Jesus propitiated the sins of every single person in the world, then you got two options. Number one is everyone goes to heaven because if the wrath of God is propitiated, taken away, satisfied, there's no wrath left for me. And then everyone goes to heaven. Now, I think, I hope everyone watching this will reject that out of hand. We're not universalists. That's false teaching. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus says, the way is broad that leads to destruction. Many enter by it. So if propitiation here is for both the elect and the unelect, according to the Arminian side, if that's true, then we have to redefine what we even mean by the word propitiation. And most Arminians, I say this, I hope out of love, but most Arminians would say, he is the propitiation for the sins of everybody in the sense that had anyone in the world trusted Christ and believed in him, their sins would have been taken away and God's wrath would have been propitiated. Now, the ironic thing is I agree with that. I think that's true. Anyone who turns and trusts Christ, anybody in the whole world, any individual in the world, if you turn and trust Christ, your, your sins will be propitiated because Jesus died for sinners in such a way that everyone who turns from sin and trusts in Christ will be forgiven. Jesus has never turned away a sinner who came to him in true saving faith. Okay, that does not in any way militate against limited atonement. But propitiation means propitiation, and therefore it can't be for everybody. Yes, anyone who trusts in Christ will be saved, but to say he actually propitiated every single sin that ever happened leaves you in a state of double jeopardy where he propitiated the sins of Goliath, but then Goliath died an unbeliever, and now Goliath is paying for his sins in hell. Now my question to you, I want to say this humbly, if you believe that Jesus propitiated the sins of everyone on the cross, including unbelievers and the unelect who die rejecting Christ. In what sense are Goliath's sins propitiated if right now he is in torment paying for his sins? 
And if you say, well, if, if he would have trusted Christ, his sins would have been propitiated. I agree with you. But he didn't trust Christ. He was not a believer. He never was a believer. And he died an unbeliever proving he was not elect. So in what sense did Jesus propitiate the sins of Goliath? The answer is he did not. Jesus did not actually propitiate God's wrath against Goliath's sins. That's why Goliath is paying for his sins right now under God's wrath. Otherwise, you have double jeopardy where Jesus took the punishment and the wrath for the sins of Goliath, but now Goliath is paying that same punishment for his sins in hell. That is not, uh, that is not a good understanding of the word propitiation. So to keep us from robbing the word propitiation of its meaning, I say we allow propitiation to continue to have the meaning that it actually has, which is Jesus securing the removal of wrath for you. That's what it means for Jesus to propitiate your sins. He removes God's wrath from you. He takes away your sin. And if that's what that word means, then it can't be given to every single individual in the whole world. Which means, I think John is saying, based on what this word means, and also I want to just add advocacy. Okay? Advocacy is the role of intercession. And I've mentioned this before, propitiation is atonement. The priest did both of these acts, advocated for, prayed for, and propitiated the sins of only a limited group of people in the Old Testament. They did it for Israel, right? On the day of atonement, the scapegoat and the slaughtered goat propitiated God's wrath. And then the priest would go in and sprinkle the blood and advocate for or, or, or intercede for not the Philistines, not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians, not the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. He did it only for the covenant people Israel. It was a limited intercession and a limited atonement, but it was an effective intercession and an effective atonement. Similarly, Jesus as a priest intercedes only for who? The believer. He propitiates only for who? The believer. Well, if that's true, then why does he say he propitiated it for our sins and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world? I tell you what I think it means here. He means not just our sins here in Asia Minor in Ephesus, not just our local sins, but no, for the sins of the whole world is in all of God's true people throughout all planet earth. From every people group, every tribe and tongue, everyone who trusts in Christ throughout the whole world, he advocates for them as a priest, he intercedes for them, and he propitiates God's wrath for them. Anybody, every elect person throughout the whole world, every single person who turns and trusts Christ in the whole world will have their sins propitiated. That's what he means. He doesn't mean every single sinner is propitiated. Now, let me give you an argument for this. Mike Riccardi says it like this. The universal atonement position, which I'm disagreeing with, and he is too, separates the inseparable work of the priestly ministry. On the one hand, Jesus is the propitiation for all without exception, but on the other hand, he is only for believers, what? The heavenly advocate. Now, we cannot separate the priestly work of Jesus. Everyone he advocates for, he propitiates. Everyone he propitiates, he advocates for. And in John 17, 9, he said, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me and for those who will believe in their message through them. I'm praying and interceding only for the elect, the believers. I'm not praying for the whole world, okay? For every individual. But then Mike Riccardi says, but not only does this sever what John links in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, he links advocacy and propitiation, intercession, the parakletos, and atonement. But it also stands at odds with the whole of Scripture's teaching that, look at this, the work of the high priest is a unified work of sacrifice and intercession. I think this is a solid contextual and canonical argument for Jesus propitiating only for the sins of his people throughout the world. 
Like Ricardi says, neither the priests of the Old Covenant nor Christ, the great high priest of the New Covenant, so you've got Old Covenant here and New, New Covenant, to whom the Old Covenant priest pointed, could ever offer sacrifice on behalf of those who, who, for whom they refused to intercede. Nor could they intercede for those whom they had not sacrificed. Do you see that? If they sacrifice for somebody, they're going to intercede for that person. There is an inseparable connection between sacrifice and intercession. The same group is targeted in both of those. But if that does not satisfy you, hear me out on this next argument. Let's go back to John. Right before the, uh, the Palm Sunday scene that we looked at. John 11, after he raised Lazarus, the high priest was a wicked man, Caiaphas. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man, that's Jesus, should what? Die for the people, right? Not that the whole nation should perish. And then look at this amazing parallel text. He, Caiaphas, did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he accidentally prophesied. He didn't know his words were being appointed by the Holy Spirit, but he prophesied unwittingly that Jesus would die for the nation. Now look at this. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now that is an amazing cross-reference. Piper first pointed out to me, other people have pointed out since then. If you don't think that's strong, let me put the verses side by side. 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Look at John eleven fifty one. Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also, now do you see the parallel? Not for ours only, not for the nation only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But also, and when you're expecting to hear for the sins of the whole world, what do you get? To gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Where are they scattered abroad? Throughout the whole world. That's what scattered abroad right here is referring to. It's the whole world. So where John here says the sins of the whole world, his parallel says Jesus died to gather into one the children of God, the elect, scattered throughout the whole world. Scattered abroad. So you see here you have what? Particular redemption. I mean, this is a solid limited atonement text. John 11, 51 and 52 is a solid limited atonement text. It says Jesus died not for the nation only. That is, he didn't just die to save the remnant of true Israel inside of ethnic Judaism. No, he also died to gather into one the children of God, the elect of God who are scattered throughout the world. Jesus died with the definite intent and the effective result of bringing every single one of God's true children, every single one of the elect, the sheep who hear his voice, uh, the bride of Christ, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, not another woman, uh, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present her, the church, to himself. So, his goal in his death was to gather into one the children of God, the elect of God scattered abroad. So Jesus' death was intended not to save every individual. That's explicit in John eleven fifty one. 51. See, the word world could mean different things. So up here, it's not as clear, although I think there's reasons to take it the way I do. But this parallel is so clear. 
Jesus' intended death was to bring about the salvation of all God's true elect people scattered throughout the world. And I think that should help us interpret what he means by propitiation for the sins of not ours only, but the whole world. The whole world means all God's true people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And I don't think I'm doing violence to the text. Just to show a parallel, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, non-Jewish sheep, that are, of, that are not of this fold. They're not of ethnic Israel. I must bring them also. I must bring them also. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. There's no doubt. He's going to save every single one of his sheep, all of the children of God who are scattered abroad. And again, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Don Carson is one of the great John scholars of our day. He wrote perhaps the greatest English language commentary on, on John around. He says, why then are they called children of God before they are regenerated and gathered? Right? He, will, he died to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. Why are they called the children of God before they are regenerated and gathered? Why would God call them his children before they're Christians? The answer is in line with the predestinarian strain in this gospel. Jesus already has sheep in other pens whom he must bring. We just saw that. Certain people have already been given to the Son by the Father. We just saw that. Even if they have not yet become disciples. Even if they have not yet become disciples. For them, Jesus, for them specifically, you see that? For them, Jesus lays down his life to bring them together. For them, Jesus lays down his life to bring them together and make them one. John Piper says it like this. The question is, does this mean that Christ died with the intention to appease the wrath of God for every person in the world? Is that what 1 John 2, 2 is teaching? From all that we have seen so far from John's writing, it is not likely that it has that meaning. I would say it definitely does not have that meaning when you put all the text together. He says, look, the whole world is parallel with the children of God scattered abroad. So it is natural to think that John's point in 1 John 2, 2, he's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, is to stress that God's propitiating work is not, like I said earlier, parochial, as if he is only interested in Jews or one class or race. No grouping of humans should ever say he is the propitiation for our sins only. Like he only died to save Americans, or he only died to save Jews, or he only died to save white people or black people or whatever it might be. No, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. It's racist. It's elitist. It's wrong. Jesus died to save people from every single uh, ethnicity, every class, every race. He's, his death is not parochial. It is for all kinds of people. Piper says, no, his propitiating work is meant to gather people from the whole world. These are the sheep for whom he died, the redeemed children of God scattered abroad, the ransomed people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Well, what about John 1.29? The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, let's just stop and think about this for a second. If I circle here, who takes away, and then I've got here the sin of the world. Okay, you, you've got a choice here. If you're going to take this phrase with complete seriousness, takes away sin, then it can't be for every individual in the world. 
Remember, world doesn't have to mean every individual person. It often has all kinds of meanings like we looked at earlier in this video. It has at least seven different meanings. So don't just assume world means every individual person. Because if, if world here means every single individual, then what does takes away sin mean? I mean, do, do you see what I'm saying? What does it mean that Jesus took away Hitler's sin? What does it mean that he took away Judas's sin? That he took away Jezebel's sin? That he took away Goliath's sin? That he took away name an unbeliever in world history? What does it mean that he took away the sin of someone whose sins were not actually taken away? Do you see what I'm saying here? What I'm saying is, if takes away sin means takes away sin, then it cannot be that he took away the sins of every single individual in the world, or else what? Everybody goes to heaven when they die. And if you're not a universalist, and I hope you are not a universalist that believes everyone goes to heaven, then you have a, you have a question here, which is, do we, do we determine the extent of the atonement, like what does world mean, by the um, meaning of, of takes away sins, or do we determine what takes away sins mean by the sin of the world? If you're, if you're not following that, let's, go, let's quote Mike Riccardi. Should we determine the nature of the atonement in light of its extent? In other words, do we determine what propitiation or died for or takes away the sins of, or determine what it means for those things to be true in light of its extent? In which case, you got problems because now propitiation doesn't always propitiate, right? Atonement doesn't always atone. Takes away sin doesn't always mean sins are taken away. Suddenly, propitiation doesn't actually mean propitiation because you still have your sins if you die an unbeliever and you still have to pay for them. So, do we determine the nature of the atonement in light of its extent, or at least what we think the extent is, or should we determine the extent of the atonement in light of its biblical nature? Now, I'll just tell you, I think that this option right here is right. We should determine the extent of the atonement, not violating scripture or grammatical rules of, 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 of logic here, and grammatical rules. We want to determine the extent in light of what the Bible teaches about its nature. If that makes sense, we go back one more time to John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if takes away actually means take away, if that's what the nature of the atonement is, we should, we should understand what the world means in light of takes away. Whose sins are actually taken away? At the end of the day, when heaven and hell come into full view and final judgment has happened, whose sins are actually taken away? Every individual in the world? No. All of God's true people throughout the whole world who have actually trusted in Christ, the children of God scattered abroad, the other sheep who are not of this fold, who, are, who, are, who will listen to my voice. Only God's elect have their sins taken away. They live throughout the world. They're from every group in all the world, every ethnicity, every, both genders, on, on, and on. But to take away means to take away, which means that should limit the scope. If he effectively takes away the sins, then it can't be every individual. But if you, if you, go, this, if you go the other way, look at this. If you take the whole world here, if you take the whole world to mean every individual, then you have to go back and redefine what takes away sin means. You either determine the nature of the atonement, what this means, takes away sin, in light of its extent, or you determine the extent in light of its nature. And I would say since the word world can mean all kinds of things, it can mean every single person, or it can mean some from every kind, or it can mean G Gentiles as opposed to Jews and whatever, it can mean all kinds of different things then 
how should we interpret it? I think takes away sins should control how we interpret world. I don't think our definition of world should control how we define takes away sins. To take away sins means just one thing, to take away sins, to secure the removal of sin and guilt. And if it means that, it didn't happen for every individual in the world, so the definition of world must not be every single individual without exception. Here's what another author said. When Christ is said to do these things, that is to propitiate for all or for the whole world, we must either reduce the redemption words, making them much less than they say, or what? Reduce the universal terms, such as all and the whole world. Now, in neither case are we, listen carefully. If we reduce the redemption words, like propitiation doesn't always propitiate, takes away doesn't always take away, then we make them say much less than they say. But if we reduce the universal terms, such as all and the whole world, we're on the right track because the word all can mean every kind. World can mean Jews as opposed to Gentiles, Gentiles as opposed to Jews. It, these all and world don't have to mean everybody. But I think that the redemption words have to mean redeem. And therefore, we should determine the extent of the atonement in light of its biblical nature. Mike Riccardi again. If Christ is the propitiation for the sins of all without exception, for the reprobate as well as the elect, what could stop these troubled believers from asking John what difference such propitiation makes for them? Since Christ is the propitiation for those who nevertheless bear the punishment of their sins for eternity. You see, the cross starts to become cold comfort. If Jesus died for you, believer, if you're a believer, if he died for you in the exact same way that he died for someone in hell, then his death for you was not guaranteed effective and is less of a comfort. You see that? But no, Jesus died specifically for his sheep, his bride, his church, and that death secures infallibly the new birth and the grace of regeneration and faith and repentance that he secures and grants to us so that he teaches us to come to Christ and he draws us to Christ so that we truly and uh, rightly and actually come to Christ and trust in him and believe in him. John 3.16. Let's be very brief on this. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, and look at this, that whoever believes, whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. I do not want to minimize this verse, but I also don't want to misinterpret this verse. This verse says, for God so loved the world. The word so, hutas in the Greek means in this way. Like if I, if I was showing you how to bat left hand, I'd say, hold the bat like so, right? In this way. That's what the Greek word means here. For God loved the world so. God loved the world in this way. doesn't mean so much. It means in this way. Hutas. Look, you can look it up in the, in the Greek uh, New Testament, Greek dictionary. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. Why did Jesus give his son? To a big, dark, evil world. That. Here's the purpose for why Jesus came. Why God sent Jesus. To save believers. That th this is just the word all who believe or those believing, right? He, he, he so loved the world that he gave his son so that, why did he give Jesus? So that all believers, whoever believes, every believer should not perish but have eternal life. This verse, actually, you can see it teaching particular redemption, as funny as that may sound. God has a love for this big, evil, dark world. He sent his son into this big, evil, dark world with the purpose of dying to save everyone who believes, which happens to be the elect, the sheep, the bride, the true people, children of God scattered abroad, the sheep who will hear his voice and follow him. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So yes, God has a love for the world. He sent his son into the world, but the goal was that all believers 
all the elect, all true people of God would not perish but have eternal life. All right, and the, the did Jesus buy those who eventually apostatize? I'm gonna have to save that for Sunday school on Sunday. I just don't wanna make this video any longer. Thank you so much for watching. If you have questions or comments, you can put them in the comments below in the video. And uh, thank you very much for your time.